The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Welcome back as we return to my conversation with the engaging Sel Sharar. In episode one, we learned of Sel's ambition to be a singer and subsequent musical theatre debut in Harry and Miller's production of Grease. This despite a career in the law that beckoned. In quick succession, Sal was soon to land a role touring in Ken Brodziak's production of Godspell, a role that confirmed his iconic status in the history of musical theatre in Australia was just around the corner, that of Riff Raff in the original Australian production of The Rocky Horror Show, only the second production to be staged in the world after its celebrated arrival at the Royal Court Theatre in the UK. Sal was there for many celebrated key musical productions in this country, working with a host of brilliant talents. Reg Livermore's Ned Kelly, Guys and Dolls starring Ricky May, Nancy Hayes and a new talent named Anthony Warlow. And the splendour and fascination of the production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Melbourne premiere of Sunset Boulevard. But we pick up from Sal's entry into the Frankenfurter Castle, joining a cast of Australia's finest, Arthur Dignam, Kate Fitzpatrick, it's Reg Livermore and Jane Harders, just to name a few. And Sal, of course, tearing up the stage as the iconic manservant, Riff Raff. But listen closely, and not for very much longer, I've got to keep control. No, I, I can't remember what I sang for that now. Uh, that would require some sort of rock number. Rock song it yeah. was, I did. Uh, I think it was Give Me That Old Time Rock and Roll or something like that I sang, you know. and uh, Which really suited because it was almost like, um, it was almost like Time Warp, you know. 
Give me that old time rock and roll. You know, you got a feeling in your soul. You know, all that sort of stuff. And uh, it was old Jerry Lee Lewis thing. And uh, so that, I think that was the song I auditioned with. Audition with. And Jim, Jim worked with me for quite a while, Jim Sharma. And um, he said, oh, he said, playing a hunchback. He said, come out. He said, I just want you to greet people. You know, he said, just look up at them and greet them. You know, so I was, I was doing all that, he said. And he said, and they're, they're saying stuff to you. He said, and just look at them and just keep saying, yes, yes, yes. You know, that sort of stuff. Uh, anyway, I felt good in the audition. Um, now, this is the... Uh only the second production outside the UK, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yes. So, so you would know nothing about the show, I guess. Nothing about it. We hadn't seen... There was no music out here. There was... movie was years years away. And, uh, and uh, we didn't know a lot about it. And uh, I, 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 I knew nothing about it. I mean, Jim and Kate had... Kate Fitzpatrick. Kate Fitzpatrick. And, uh, you, oh, share Kate, a you share a birthday with her. I do, I do. <laughs> You're magenta. Yes, that's right. Yeah. We're uh, first, first of October children. But uh, Kate, no, Kate and Arthur had seen it. Arthur Dignam had seen it at the Royal Court. And so they knew what, was, what it was all about. And Kate had a really good relationship with Jim Sharman. And um, that they, they, they were mates in those days, and um, she knew a bit about it. But but the interesting thing was, I wasn't cast in it. You know, they they were just interested in me. So I, then I get a call again at the Richbrook, because in those days there's no mobile phones, so people needed to know where you were. So my agent always knew when I was at the Richbrook because I'd be there about to do Godspell. You know, a half hour call or whatever. Or, and so she rings me up and she says, oh, look, they're very interested in you for Rocky Horror. She said, but they want to know, would you be interested in being an understudy? And I said, uh, she said to understudy Riff Raff and uh, I think it was um, uh, Eddie. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, now the other thing is, Sal, she said, there's every chance, she said, that you could end up getting the role. She said, but um, Gary McDonald was with uh, Faith Martin as well, right? And Gary had been doing uh, Wollongong the Brave uh, and had developed the Norman Gunston character. And she said, look, if ABC offer Gary the, uh, a series as the Norman Gunston character, she said, then he will do that. But he's been offered riffraff. Uh, but if Gary decides not to do it, she said, but either way, you've got a job. She said, or if Gary does it, then you'll be the understudy. As it turned out, Gary went off to do Norman Gunston, which was a huge hit. And, uh, and I uh, did Riff Raff, which was definitely one of the highlights of my career, you know, creating that role from scratch and working with Reg, people like Reg Livermore and Arthur Dignam and Kate Fitzpatrick, you know, and then getting to know others like Maureen Elkner and Graham 
Matters and uh, John Paramore. John Paramore. Oh, and the the, the, the lovely um, Jane Harders. And how long did that run? In Sydney, it ended up running about 14, 15 months. Reg did it for about 10 of those. And then he left because already in the pipeline was the one-man show for him. Betty Blockbuster. Yeah, so then he went off to do Betty Blockbuster because Eric Dare, who had the Valhalla, Cinema also owned the Bijou. And, in, Bal- uh, in Balmain, that is. In Balmain, Bijou. yeah. So he was already talking to to Peter Beatty and uh, Reg about uh, a one-man show for Reg. And they came up with Betty Blockbuster. And he said, we'll put it in the Bijou. Because Eric was very much thinking, I'll do the same thing as I did with the Valhalla, which was an old movie theatre. I'll turn it into a live, live theatre. And he did the same with the, the Bijou. Because at the, at the Valhalla, you know, like you had the stage down the front where the screen would have normally been, but there was no side stage much there at all and no backstage. And the dressing rooms were all the way up where the buyer box was. So that's where we... Um, used to have to get changed. Uh, the dressing rooms were right at the other end of the theatre. And they had that big um, catwalk that went all the way down the side of the theatre, which was where Frank entered from as well. You know, So uh, that was that theatre. And you got to do an original cast recording too. Got to do the original cast recording and make some money out of it, actually. <laughs> I never made money out of it. Uh, you know, it was very funny because Harry, every now six months or so, we'd get these royalty checks because it was so popular. And then I remember once in something like Billboard or Variety, they they said that the Australian production was, you know, they regarded it as the best live, uh, best production of a, of a recording of um, the Rocky Horror Show. It's pretty crazy. I mean, Reg was just. Wow, what an experience that was. Uh, I mean, I'd seen Reg in um, Cup of Tea, uh, a Bex and a Good Lie Down, you know, when he was doing things like that. And then I, I saw him when he took over the role as Burger in Hair. And then I saw him come in and do a real job on, um, on Herod in Superstar. It turned like a three-minute number into an eight-minute number which is just fantastic. And I thought, wow, he is exciting. He is so exciting, that guy. And then when he came in and uh, took on Rocky, and the lovely thing was Jim, Jim just wanted us all to make those roles our own, you know. We never once found out how they played them in the UK. We had, I had no idea what, the other riffraff looked like, you know, because I had this wild afro hair, you know, and when you teased it out, they used to, I remember Sue Blaine, the costume lady, said, oh, we're going to tease out your hair, so, <laughs> yeah, and she, she put one of those curry cones in there and teased it all out, and it was, it just looked crazy, because you could bounce bloody ping pong balls off my hair in those days, you know, it was so wiry, 
and uh, and I never forget Harry said uh, the first time you walked on stage Sally said and they he said they had this uh, orange light behind me and they had this green light on my face he said it was just the most amazing look because uh, Richard O'Brien had, had created the role hadn't he in the UK well he had yeah he, he was, the, well creating the, he was show. the original riffraff yeah yeah but we I'd never seen it and so what was it like seeing the film for the first time did you see any similarities to what the work I didn't that you'd like created? it at all I didn't like the movie because I thought it was it, it, look it was exciting to see it on, 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 on film and to see who Tim Curry and to see Richard O'Brien and all these people, but I, I, I just, I just thought it, 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 our show was gritty and grungy and and dangerous and uh, tacky, you know, and and it was because of all of that that the Rocky Horror Show had 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 a real. A real edge and excitement. A real, a real edge. About, yeah, that's yeah. right. A real, real edge, and 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 like Reg just went with that, you know. So we really enjoyed running the gamut of the the dark and the the darker side of the Rocky Horror thing with the with the lighter side of it and the the fun side of it, you know. And I I think the movie just almost ha- uh, neutralized some of that um, that all that taking has sort of glammed it up a little bit yeah. you know I wish somebody would do a production like that original production again because uh, the productions I've seen in recent years are just like pantomime well well, they're just doing the Rocky Horror Picture Show and it annoys me every time I see a production now they call it the Rocky Horror Picture Show live on stage but it was always just called the Rocky Horror Show yeah. and uh, you know eventually it became the picture show and it had that cultish following uh, you know but um, yeah, that original production was really something special, and and I think we mirrored pretty much what was going on over at the Royal Court, except we were all our own characters and people. I mean, uh, uh, what Reg did with Frank Frankenfurter was was just unbelievable. You just saw that character grow before your eyes, you know, and he he became more dangerous and. Uh, and uh, more outrageous, and and people would keep coming back night after night to see it again and again because it was never the same. Yeah. And there were certain people in the company who found that a little, a little, uh, uh, not upsetting, but 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 they felt that the way Reg would, you know, change things up that that it. Uh, it made them feel a little less, they were a little uncertain about what they were doing uh, in a way and weren't that happy to, to go with it. Whereas he'd taken me under his wing in a way and, uh, and I blossomed wherever he went, I went. You know, whatever he did in our scenes, I, 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 was, I was right there with it and just reveling in it. And uh, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed working with him so much. Well, he came, he came out of the ensemble theatre and training with Hayes Gordon, didn't he? That's Which right. Was, he and uh, Max Phipps and Max Cullen and all those guys, you know, they were they were they were the uh, the star um, the star students from that period, and uh, yeah, and there was always a little bit of a rivalry between uh, Reg and, and Max, you know. 
Max was a fabulous actor too. He took risks and uh, and then he comes in and takes over Rocky Horror and we go down to Melbourne and that's a whole other trip all together then. So I did it for too long, unfortunately. But I, but I loved the time I was doing it and it was an amazing experience. Too long because you got bored or...? I wasn't getting bored doing the show. I, I, I really... But I just felt that career-wise, I could no longer... Uh, I couldn't see where I was going after Rocky Horror, you know. I, I couldn't see where, where my future was. And uh, I thought I'd stayed in it too long. And once you stay in a show for too long, people just say, oh, well, yeah, I'm in in Rocky Horror, but, you know, he's... Um, you know, can he do anything else? You know, you start to get that sort of reputation. And I remember when Rocky finished and nothing happened for like six months. And uh, I came back from Melbourne and I, I, I felt pretty scarred both physically and uh, emotionally as well by, by that show. Uh, I had a really bad back from playing the hunchback and I used to have to wear this, this uh, harness, hunch harness. Uh, and it would get incredibly wet and then it wasn't properly dried out by the time we were doing the second show because sometimes we only had a bit over an hour between shows, you know, we do a six o'clock show and then we do a nine o'clock show on a Friday night or something. And, uh, uh, so it, it, it really knocked me around. But, but I can honestly say when we opened, we opened at midnight. Not many shows open at midnight. <laughs> we opened at midnight uh, I think it was March of uh, 74 and uh, that was so exciting because we had all the cast of Superstar there because they were on at the Capitol at the time and then we were, we, were, we were going okay for a while and then it just sort of started to fall off and everybody thought oh it's going to end in six weeks so even so a few people um, I think Kate was about to leave do something else and uh and then uh, David um, was playing Rocky and, I mean, he was playing Eddie and Dr. Scott. He, uh, David Cameron, he decided to leave after six weeks. And then Terry Bader came in, took over that role. So people, people were thinking, oh, it's not going to run much longer. And the, the, the only thing that kept it going were, was pretty much the gay community. I mean, you think about it, you know, Sydney had never seen a theatre musical quite like it, you know, where the, the lead character was a transvestite dressed up in fishnet stockings, you know, with a whip, you know, I mean... It was bisexual. Bisexual, yeah, and very, very confronting, very, very sexual, and uh, yes, it was, it was such an incredible experience. Once it hooked in and it found its audience, then they just kept coming back and back and back, and we knew we had a successful show. It was a, it was a phenomenal hit. And, and it was one of the uh, important shows that changed the face of musical theatre, you know, from that period of, um, uh, you know, the, the Rogers and Hammerstein and uh, all the J.C. Williamson productions, you know, that were coming out. Hair was the first one that did that, and then you had Superstar and Godspell, and now Rocky Horror had taken it to another level, you know, and it was 
just just crazy what was going on with that show but it found a whole new audience and probably 80% of the audience that came to see Rocky had never ever been to a theatre show before some insects called the human race lost in time and lost in space and We talk about how exciting working with Reg Livermore was. It must have been a thrill to join him once again for, for Ned Kelly. Well, very much so, because... Uh, and it was, it was an interesting thing, Ned Kelly. There was no role for me in that show. Reg just said, I want you in the show. That was it. And uh, at that stage, I, I wasn't too sure whether I wanted to continue doing musicals because I'd been working as a waiter in a nightclub uh, for a while before that, and when I get the call from Reg. And, uh, but anyway, I went along and he said, just come along and sing anything. He said, because so Patrick can hear you sing. That was Patrick Flynn, who I'd worked with in um, Greece. He was a musical director on that. And uh, I just wanted to be part of it because Reg was directing it. And, you know, um, it, was, uh, it was exciting. And I knew he'd been working on this and writing this musical. And I think he designed it as well. And he, he designed it. He, his paintings uh, influenced the design and the look of it, uh, which were, it was an amazing production. We went, we're all, so I, I, I was in there in the ensemble playing everything from a, a policeman to a, a tracker to whatever you know I was just happy to be along for the ride and we opened in, in um, Adelaide in Adelaide festival yeah. theater festival theater that's right. yeah. yeah and it, it was it was amazing and it, there was there was one scene where there were all these lanterns, hurricane lanterns. It was just a curtain of hurricane lanterns. I'd never seen anything so spectacular in my life, you know, apart from maybe the dodecahedron in, in Superstar. But then all these lanterns had, were, were programmed to, to, to have lighting time. patterns right. on, on them, you know. And, the, and it was, you know, it was a fantastic moment in the show. But I, I love being part of it. And of course, it, I, I was there with people like Geraldine Turner. First time I'd actually worked with Geraldine, even though I'd known her quite a while at that stage. And also working with Arthur Dignam again, who was one of my very favorite people. And uh, yeah, Doug Parkinson and... Uh, Colin Hay. Colin Hay. That, there's a story about Colin Hay and uh, when we were in Adelaide, uh, uh, which relates to men at work. Because Colin Hay used to be uh, just across the hallway from me. We all had these rooms in this uh, hotel. Uh, I think it was in Hindley Street, this day. And uh, so we all had these little hotel rooms, you know, and, 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 
used to open the door and used to look through and Colin be sitting on his bed over there with his guitar. He's always had his guitar sitting on the bed. And people would knock on the door. We say, and that's where the, that was the, the start of the song, Who Can It Be Now? He used to say, Who can it be knocking on my door? You know. <laughs> and anyway, somebody had come in and nobody ever thought it was ever going to be a song or that thing, you know. But that's where that opening line of that song used to come from, Who Can It Be Knocking On My Door? And of course, you'd go in and you'd have a chat to Colin. But uh, yeah, it was a great, it was amazing. This is a show also before radio mics, and I believe yes. that uh, the performers used mics on leads. We did. So yeah. there was a, a microphone choreography that was required. It, it certainly was. It's similar to Superstar and similar to uh, Rocky Horror as well. You know, we, we're all, they're all mics with leads. Right. Yep. We all, we, we all had uh, microphones with leads. So you, you, you needed to work out how to negotiate those while you're on stage you know I mean it uh, otherwise you'd end up with this mess of spaghetti microphone leads you know just sort of uh, and they all had to go back to the side of the stage you know so you had to know exactly where your where your microphone traveled so that it didn't inter interlock with somebody else's but that was the case in Ed Kelly as well yeah that's right Jans were doing sound in the, on the, the shows in those days. And they did the original Superstar, so uh, yeah, all that stuff. But, uh, but, but Ned Kelly was very exciting and it was disappointing as well that it didn't become the success I felt that it deserved at that time. I thought there were some fabulous songs in it, fabulous people in it. And uh, yeah, I thought, uh, I felt sad for Reg. And that hurt him a lot. That, uh, that really uh, sort of put a little bit of a, a halt on his career in a way. He started thinking, what do I do now? Uh, but it's the, the constant dilemma of the artist, isn't it? The, the performing artist especially, where you get to these crossroads where you stop and do a bit of reflection about... Um, What's next? Do I continue? Um, well, well, absolutely. Path? And see, after after Ned Kelly, uh, I went back to working in this nightclub in the Cross called uh, Le Club Nightclub. And uh, I'd be, I was there for about, I guess it would have been six months. And um, one night I noticed that one of the tables down the front, we had shows on there like Dance Machine was a show uh, that had come out that was choreographed by Sammy Bays, who, who was the original choreographer on Pippin and um, Godspell and director of Godspell and, um, in the States and also out here originally. And uh, he directed this show called um, Dance Machine and they were, it, it was these American dancers who were dancing to... Um, BG numbers, you know, from Saturday Night Fever and all of that, and, and it was it was a fantastic show. The lights and the dancing and everything and the music, you know, people people just loved it and they kept flocking there. So uh, that that's where I was working at this nightclub, and um, and and then one night I noticed that uh, Harry Miller was 
was in with a whole bunch of people on one table, Maggie Tabra and, um, and um, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? Wonderful, elegant actor. Was Stuart around. Wagstaff. Stuart Wagstaff, yeah. They were all sitting there. I think they were all on Harry's books and he was having a bit of a night out with them all, you know, and some of his stuff and everything. So he had this table of 10 or 12 and... And they weren't in my section. And I said to this waiter, I said, look, I said, look, can I have that table? I said, I'll buy it off you. I said, you? <laughs> I can't remember what I gave him, five or $10. And he said, oh yeah, okay, sure. You know. So um, I, I bought that table off him because those tables in that, that down area, that front area were always used to tip, you know, around about five, $10 at the end of the night or something. And so I'd, I'd served the entree, I'd served the main course, and I was just about to serve the, the dessert. And Harry looked at me and said, Sal. And I said, yeah, Harry. He said, Sal Sherrard. I said, yeah. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm working. I said, I'm working as a waiter. He said, you shouldn't be working as a bloody waiter. He said, and then he said to the whole time, he said, this is Sal Sherrard. He said, he was in the Rocky Horror Show. He said, he never took a night off, this guy. Not one night off, you know. He said, and he was fabulous. And, and they all go, oh, yeah, I remember Sal in the Rocky Horror Show and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, Harry said, hey, come here, come here, come here. And I said, this is a bit later on. He said, look, he said, call the office tomorrow. He said, he said, you don't want to be doing this, do you? He said, he said, you want to go back on the stage? I said, yeah. He said, well, look, they, they, they want to do a production of Rocky Horror in New Zealand. He said, call the office tomorrow. He said, give Freddie a call. This is Freddie Gibson. He used to run his office and was his main man. He said, and tell Freddie, he said, you're, you're, you're interested, you know? And I said, oh, okay. So anyway, I, I called Freddie and Freddie's, Freddie says, oh, Harry said that you'd like to do the show in New Zealand. It was riffraff. And I said, I said, yeah, I said, that, that, that'd be great. You know, I thought, oh, well, go back and do it over in New Zealand. So uh, I get over there and, uh, and it's being directed by Rainer Burton, who was the original Rocky. And he's also playing Rocky. And the guy playing Frankenfurter is Gary Glitter. Joking. No. Oh. The Gary Glitter. And uh, so it, it became, a <laughs> that became a real experience because what happened while we were in Auckland, Rainer Burton, uh, we were staying in the, uh, this hotel in Auckland and Rainer Burton uh, had one of those nights where he got on the drugs and got on the alcohol and just busted up this room for some reason, the hotel room. So Stuart McPherson of Stetson Productions who were producing the show in New Zealand, uh, you know, in conjunction with Harry and Michael White and all of that, he turned around and said, oh look, rain up he said we're gonna to have to let you go you know so the, the next thing he turned to me he said look I've been talking to Harry Harry said you'd be the best guy to take over the show he said you know it inside out so I became the tour director then for the production 
And uh, he said, can you also find us another Rocky? So I called up my old mate, Graham Matters, who was in the original production. I said, Graham, can you get over here? And uh, he did. He, he just finished doing The Whiz. So he came, flew over to New Zealand, took over the role of Rocky, and away we went. Uh, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a fascinating time because uh, Gary Glitter could not stop being Gary Glitter, even though he was out there playing Frankenfurter. And um, so I had to, it was very challenging as a, somebody who was sort of a Rocky Horror traditionalist, you know, I wanted, I kept trying to steer Gary towards, you know, finding more Frankenfurter in the role than Gary Glitter, you know, but all Gary wanted to do was, you know, get out there and perform the songs like Gary Glitter, you know, and, uh, and, and, and just uh, roll with it. So somehow, some way, we made it all work. And, and Gary ended up being, I gotta say, he ended up being a very lovely guy and very generous. And he used to tour around with his, his own cases of uh, Beaujolais, which came from France. And, uh, and so he, he, whenever we went to t any town like Hamilton or whatever, when we were playing and they didn't have anything open late, he'd go and set it up with a restaurant and say, look, we're all going to come here, he said. There's going to be about 12 or 14 of us and we're all going to keep your restaurant open and make you a lot of money if you can, if you can accommodate us after the show, you know. And they'd go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, Gary Glitter, blah, blah, blah. And Gary would, and, and often he'd end up paying for us all as well. He was incredibly generous. And, uh, yeah, and it was an interesting time. And people loved the show in New Zealand. I mean, that... It, uh, it, it really, uh, well, that was the first time I'd ever been there. I think it was 78, 79. And um, so, that, um, so that's how I ended up doing that. And that was a really interesting experience. And when I came back from that, once again, I went into this, I went back working at the club nightclub. It was funny, I just kept going back there all the time. And, uh, well, it's good to, for an actor to have those gigs which are flexible that you can go back to when you're not on yeah, the stage. Yeah, it was sort of my go-to job. And the manager there was also lovely to me. And he ended up making me the head waiter there after a while, this next time when I went back. And then I, um, the band, they, had, they got a live band in because they were doing this show with this guy, Joe Daniels, and it was like an Elvis show. And he'd come over from Vegas and... Um, it was like the Elvis experience or something, but he was fabulous Elvis uh, impersonator, performer in his own right as well. And so they had a live band there. So I knew a couple of the musos in the band who'd been in the pit of other musicals that I'd done. And they said, oh, Sally, you should come up and sing a song sometime, you know. And so as a waiter, I would sneak behind and belt out Moondance or, you know, some other jazz song or something with the band and they'd all and nobody could see where this voice was coming from and then one day um the owner of the club was in there and he said who's singing he said i'm looking at the stage he said i can't see anybody singing that song he said who's singing that 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 song yeah and and anyway they'd say oh that's 
that's Sal the waiter. And he says, Sal the waiter? And he came over and he said, was that you up there singing? And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, oh, we've got to put you on the stage. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, how fantastic. He said, here you are, you're waiting on all the tables. He said, and then you get out there and you sing a song. He said, well, people will love it. So anyway, they did. So they made a little feature. We're going to get one of our waiters up to sing and people will go, oh, groan, you know. And of course I'd get out there and I'd nail this song, you know, with the big band playing, oh, band, it was 12-piece band, you know. And, um, and it was fabulous. So then I thought, uh, Maureen Elkner, who did, did Rocky Horror with me at that time, said to me, Sal, you should get a cabaret act together. She said, I'm doing the, I'm doing the clubs. She said, and I'm making a lot of money. I went along and saw her act. She was fabulous. She was, you know, Maureen, get out there. She'd sing all these Dusty Springfield songs, you know, and then she'd sing her big hit of Rack Off Normie, you know, and, uh, and so it was, um, she had a fabulous show. And I thought, oh, maybe I could do that, you know. And then she was telling me about the sort of money that she's earning and the number of gigs she was doing. I think, wow, wow. So I, this, I had this mate who was uh, the saxophone player in the band, Greg Mason, and he said, he said, I'll write your charts for you, mate. He said, and I said, well, okay. So he started writing charts and I started working out what I could do, a little bit of comedy, a little bit of music, you know, and, and uh, you know, a few songs and, some comical songs like Ahab the Arab and Maharaja and Magador do this whole Arabic medley, you know, and, uh, and a few other things, a little rock medley and a few jazz numbers in there and some crazy, you know. So I, 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 I came up with this uh, cabaret show where I used to open with um, no pants on. You know, I come out there immaculately dressed with it with a tux and bow tie and suspenders on my socks and everything, you know, but just no trousers. And of course they arrive from the dry cleaners halfway through my opening number and I put them <laughs> on very clearly, you know, and and, um, and, and, and that was the routine. So I, I developed this cabaret act via working in this nightclub. And a couple of agents started giving me a bit of work and the next thing everybody said, oh, you know, this guy's so Shirai, he's got this great act, you know, he does a bit of comedy, he's, he's very different, you know, he's one of these new age performers. So the next thing I know, I'm getting all this work, uh, working in the, the clubs. So as a result of working in the clubs, I, I did that solidly for about two years. Then I get this job working on a cruise ship for six weeks called the Princess Missouri over in Singapore. This agency that I was being booked through said, oh, it's six weeks on a cruise ship, you know, and they turn around the cruise every two weeks. Uh, they sail around Southeast Asia and you just do uh, four shows, you know. You do two cabaret shows, you do French night and you do Italian night, you know, or the Hawaiian night or something and you have to sing stock songs, you know. So I did that uh, for the six weeks and now while I was on there, um, I was sitting at a table one night and I'm having this conversation with this with this really nice nice bloke and his family and uh, we're chatting and he said what do you you know he said I really enjoyed your cabaret act and all that sort of stuff I said oh thanks he said uh, he said what do you think of the ship I said oh it's great I said but it 
and the entertainment and I said well they could theme it up a bit more I said you know there's a whole lot of stuff that I think you could do with the entertainment I said to make it a little bit more uh, exciting for people you know I said have theme nights running right through from the restaurant where you do French food and then you have a French night cabaret evening and then you do Italian food and then you you know people so they have the whole Italian experience and then you do an Italian uh, sort of cabaret show um, that follows up with that similar to the Hawaiian nights they used to have out on deck you know and he said oh, I like all that you know and I said you know with the Camp French show you know you could do have the girls get out there and do the can-can and all that because a lot of the crew stuff uh, were really talented you know they're, they're, they're performers and and we had a ship full of uh, Filipinos who were the most fabulous singers and performers, yeah. you know? And so they, they were keen to be all part of it. So I used to get them all involved. So, oh, but I'm jumping, jumping ahead. So anyway, it turns out that this guy that I'm talking to is called Peter Reese, and he's the operations manager. So the next thing, he says to me, uh, give me your contact details back in Sydney. He said, because I'm coming over to Sydney. He said, and I would be good to catch up. So he did, and he was staying at somewhere like the Regent, and he calls me up and he says, come and have a bite to eat, and I go and have a bite to eat with him. He said, I'd like you to come on as our entertainment manager. He said, we'd like to give you a job. And so I went on, and I was the entertainment manager for six months, and then I took over as the cruise director on the Princess Missouri, and I did that. So I was on there for about 14 months altogether. And so, uh, you know, I was completely, completely out of the whole musical theatre thing. Yeah, right at the other end of the spectrum. And then I came back because my mum was ill and then my mum passed away. So that just rocked my world enormously. I just felt like the primary pillar that was part of my life had just been knocked out from under me and I, I was I was rattleless I was just um, not sure what was going on with my life and I was an only child my mum and dad everything to make my life as easy and uh, you know and you know, made enormous sacrifices for me to get the education I got and everything so I I, I was I felt like I'd owed my mum a lot and I'd never ever got the chance to repay her in a way. And I knew it broke her heart when I went off and left law and went into showbiz. And uh, even though she was very proud of me when I was doing shows like Godspell and that, not so much with Rocky Horror, she didn't, didn't like that show that much. <laughs> Being a good Catholic woman who used to go to church every Sunday you know, and do a lot of praying. Um, yeah, when she died, it, uh, I was lost, yeah. So I um, was just hanging around wondering what to do and I went back on, uh, after we did the funeral and everything and uh, yeah, I, I just thought, oh, I went back on cruise ships and I was working. I did a bit on the Princess Missouri for a while again and then I came back and I started becoming a fill-in uh, assistant cruise director on um, 
the um, Fair Star, which was just so lowbrow. I mean, but anyway, you did it because it was a job and it was a lot of fun. I was working with some great people on there, Johnny Smythe and, and Graham Gillies and people like that. So I, I was, I probably worked on there on and off about 12 months, you know, just uh, as an assistant cruise director. Um, and then one day um, I, I was living... I'd, I'd got off there and I didn't know what I was wanted to do, you know. And musical theatre just wasn't on the table. I got... Faith Martin was no longer my agent. I mean, it became Martin Shanahan and I stayed with the agency during that when she, Bill bought out half the agency of, with Faith. And then uh, when Bill took it over, he started to streamline it and I only stayed with him for about two years, Bill Shanahan, and then... And then I got this letter from him that I hadn't read. I'd, I'd been overseas <laughs> working on the cruise. And I get back and there's this letter from Shanahan saying, I'm sorry, but I had to let you go. You know, you've been too inactive on the books and all that sort of stuff. And we've got a couple of other types very similar to you, which was Lex Marinos, you know, and somebody else, probably John McTurner. So they let me go. And so I didn't have an agent, and I was living in Shepherd Street in a place with Terry Bader, who was another actor, a good mate of mine, and another actor called Richard Healy, and uh, and uh, Michael Bader, who was a stage manager at that time. All the Baders, you know, these are all related to Valerie Bader, you know, they're all they're all performers or stage managers or something, you know. And so I'm living at this place with Terry in Shepherd Street. Uh, down in uh, Broadway there and I go across to uh, to Grace Brothers in Broadway at that time and they've got a little supermarket there you know? so I get, I'm getting these supermarket things and I'm, I'm walking out of the supermarket and I'm just about to cross back over to the other side of uh, George Street in Broadway and I hear Sal Sherrard I turn around and there's John Robbo, John Robinson, right? And I I knew John from, you know... Ned Kelly. And Ned the, Kelly and uh, Festival. those days, and, you know. And uh, and also, John John was a personality around the place because he'd come through the, the stage management wrecks into the producing roles and everybody loved him, you know. I mean, uh, Robbo, uh, and as they still do. And he said to me, what are you doing? I said, I said, oh, not much. I said, I got back. I was been working on cruise ships a bit, you know, not doing much. He said, you doing any musicals? I said, no, no. He said, look. He said, we're about to do Guys and Dolls. He said, he said, who's your agent? He said, oh, um, I said, I haven't got one at the moment. He said, oh, well, look. He said, take this number. He said, just ring up and say that you were talking to me, and that I said that. You know, so you don't have to go into the cattle call. He said, you just get a private audition. And so I did. I went along and I auditioned. And I got into Guys and Dolls. Little Lips Louie. Little Lips Louie, yeah. <laughs> David Taguri was our director. And that, just another sliding door moment. You know, I mean, I could have just walked out of Grace Brothers a minute earlier, a minute later, and I wouldn't have seen Robbo. As a result of that happening... I not only did Guys and Dolls and got back into 
theater and that. But that's when I met Joe because Joe was... This is Joe Liston, your Joe Liston, yep. yeah. Because Joe was working at Playbox Theatre as an assistant publicist, but she was also moonlighting as a dresser. And she'd moonlighted as a dresser on the Carter file and loved it so much down in Melbourne, she decided to stay on and do Guys and Dolls, which would, had come into the match. So she was working as a dresser on that. And she used to dress the boys. <laughs> she was one of the three dresses who was in the boys' dressing room. And, uh, and so she was dressing me and about three other guys throughout the show. And uh, yeah, so that's where I met her. And of course, you know, out of that, we ended up getting married and having kids and all of that. But, but Guys and Dolls, what, what an experience that was. That was truly one of the most fabulous shows and incredible companies I think anybody could ever hope to be part of. I mean, apart from the wonderful Nancy Hayes, who I'd loved and admired up to that time forever, and then getting to work with her, uh, there was Ricky May. And oh, Ricky was a character that was just larger than life, and he was, he'd never done musical theatre before. And uh, he, he just brought a special magic to that show. And then Anthony Warlow, who got plucked out of the opera chorus to come and do musical theatre. You know, first first musical theatre show. Angela Ayres, gorgeous Ange, and uh, Johnny Mack again. Here I am back working with John McTurnan again, you know. So we do, um, we do Grease, Godspell. Now, um, Guys and Dolls, and then we end up working together again in uh, Sunset Boulevard. Uh, and of course we worked together in GP when he was a regular in GP and I was a guest on there for about three episodes, four episodes or something. But anyway, Guys and Dolls was very, very special and uh, because of uh, people like Nancy and Anthony Woolard and, and Peter Adams who played, he was amazing. Played Nathan, Nathan Detroit. Nathan yeah. Detroit, yeah. And then you had incredible characters among all the the, the the guys, you know, like Roger Ward playing Big Julie. I mean, God, what a Big Julie he was. He was just fantastic, you know. Stan Kuros, some lovely actors in that. Wayne Scott Kerman, Katie, you know. Michael John Herney, you know, you just rattle them off. Winda Souza, um, yeah, lovely people, lovely girls, and uh, and 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 having Ricky in that show, who just kept us all so grounded because he'd come from the cabaret world, you know, and. I remember him saying, oh, the idea of singing the same song night after night, he said, I thought that's going to become a bit boring after a while, you know, because even when he was doing his cabaret show, he'd always change it up all the time and the guys never knew what he was going to do next in, the, in his band, you know, but I, I'll never forget him doing Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat and we we're about to do our first preview. David Taguri said, look, I know you've only just learnt this song. He said, but 
we need to work out a core, uh, an encore, right? So at the end of the song, he said, because I think they might enjoy it. He said, if they enjoy it, he said, you usually get an encore. He said, and then we might work out a second encore, should it be needed. So we worked out the encore, you know, uh, Ricky had just ripped back in and seeing uh, people all said, sit down, sit down, and away you go, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, you're out in the boat, boom, you know, and that'd be the end of it. And then the audience would applause and then, and then away we'd go again, you know. So this night we're doing the first preview and uh, we get out there and we've done the, the two encores that we rehearsed and the audience is still going nuts. You know, and they're standing and they're screaming because Ricky May has just sort of blown the song out of the water, you know, like nobody could ever imagine. And um, and the guys, I mean, the energy that's coming out of him is, is, is searing through all of us on stage with him. So, you know, the, the adrenaline is just going through the roof. And... Um, and the audience are feeling this and they just want more of it. They just want more of it. They couldn't get enough. So we've done two encores now. And then Ricky breaks the fourth wall. He says, <laughs> okay, okay. He said, how about a bit of sugar for the boys in the band? You know, <laughs> like real in cabaret style, you know. <laughs> and of course the audience are going, oh, like this. And of course they... He gets back and then we get back in and we do another couple of encores, the same two again. But there was one night in Sydney uh, where I think we did seven encores of that song. It was just wow. incredible. Yeah. And, uh, and that was the magic of Ricky May. But there were so many wonderful stories about Ricky in that show and uh, I got to know him really well in that. I'd met him before because he, he came on one of the cruises that I was the cruise director on yeah. and uh, so I, I got to spend that time with him and got to know him then he, he came on as a guest uh, guest artist and um, he used to love his food and there was that this is a true story uh, he used to there was a, the whole period where Sky meets Sarah you know, and then they sing, I've, um, I've never, never been in love before. Never, never been in love before yeah. and all that moment, you know, where he's uh, trying to woo her. So there's a, there's a good 15, 20 minutes when Ricky's not on stage. And then the next time he's on stage is when Nathan says, um, you know, where he has to come back and tell him whether there's more cheesecake or more strudel being sold at Mindy's right <laughs> you know? and uh, have we found, have you got a place you know for the game so anyway Ricky on matinee days used to sneak out the um, the, the back the, the back area the the um, stage loading door. dock oh. yeah the state the door near near the loading dock in that in in, in this is in Melbourne in little Burke Street and pop across the road where there was this little Chinese place and he'd already set it all up saying that, you know, like half an hour into the show, the show starts at 2, 2.30, I want a plate of this and a plate of that and a plate of this, you know, and they'd go, yeah, 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 okay, you know, and he'd throw down $50 and say, you know, just do it, keep the change, all that stuff, you know. 
So he'd, he'd come out, he'd be getting the real munchies, you know, and, uh, and they, they, he'd go out there, go out there as, as bloody... Uh, nicely, nicely. In, in, in nicely, nicely gear. And munch this bloody food down, then come back in through the, the door near the loading dock and get back on stage. Well, this day, the door and the loading dock closed. <laughs> so he had to go, he had to go all the way around the front of the theatre. And anyway, anyway there's, there's Nathan and Benny and, and, and they're saying, Nathan's saying, Where's nicely? And and Benny's saying, I don't know, you know. And he's saying, What do you mean he don't know? Where is he? You know. And this is happening in the show. And the next thing, thundering down the aisle, here I am, Nathan. I'm here, Nathan. I'm here, you know. And he down the aisle, down the aisle of the show. <laughs> Ricky's thundering down the aisle, and he gets up on stage. <sighs> Nathan says to him, Where have you been? And nicely says. You don't want to know, and he says, "You're right. I don't want to know." <laughs> it was just one of those moments, but uh, where he got locked out, having a little snack, and so he goes. Uh, but they, there are a lot of stories about Ricky in that sh that show, and of course the lovely Nance playing uh, Miss Adelaide. What a magical Miss Adelaide she was in those hot box girls. It was just lovely. Lovely production. Another great production is, was, Sunset Boulevard. Well, that with, was... With another extraordinary leading lady. That, 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 yeah, Deb, Deb was magic in that. Deborah Byrne and uh, Hugh Jackman. I mean, that's where Hugh really came on as a star. And we had a couple of internationals there, Norbert Lambert, who played Max, wonderful performer and... Um, yeah, that was that was an incredible production. I'd never been in a a show that was so lavish, you know. Like it was a twelve million dollar production. The sets were extraordinary, and everything right down to the fine detail of costumes. The designer of the costumes was um, I can't, I just can't think of his name at the moment. But but anyway, he he used to do Hollywood movies and. Um, but he, he was the, the designer of the costumes. I mean, just one set of Norma's costumes cost $300,000. The rest of the costumes were, were, were just in, in, incredible. And I remember when, I, when he was checking out, we had to get dressed for him. And, and I, had, I had like three um, different silk ties that they had there as an option. And he ended up being so specific about saying, no, not that one, not that one, no, that one, you know. And that particular silk tie, I actually kept the tie, but um, from that production. But anyway, it, it, was a, it was an incredible production and it was an amazing show and it reopened the Regent Theatre and it looked spectacular there and because it was very grand set in very grand, um, very grand theatre and, and there was a period there like for the first eight nine months you, every time we'd come into the theatre there'd just be t people lined up down Collins Street waiting for returns you know you just couldn't get a seat and it got the most fabulous reviews initially and uh, 
And then when Deb started to um, take a few shows off, we had, there was somebody in the company who was close friends with uh, an arts writer at the Herald Sun. And we just started feeding him all this stuff about what was going on internally. And of course, all these stories just kept coming out about everything. Deborah Byrne was, oh, I mean, with one look, when she turns up into the, that set where they're shooting uh, Salome on, you know, Cecil B. DeMille, and she sings that song. And you, you know, I was standing like, a meter away from her during that, dressed in this pharaoh's costume, you know. But just looking at her, seeing that, oh, as God, if we was, never said goodbye. Eh? As if we never said goodbye. As if we never said goodbye. Yeah, I, I was just goosebumps night after night after night, just goosebumps. It was just incredible. And um, that's the thing. As a performer, you you get those front row uh, seats, don't you, to, to extraordinary performances, that's, which that's you can right. watch Ooh. over and over again. It was very special. That designer has just come to me, Anthony Powell. Anthony Powell, that was it. And he actually came out to check out the costumes, you know, we had to, had to do a costume parade for him. And as I said, he was so specific about everything. But that, but that set of costumes for... Um, Norma were, were just incredible, you know. She had to get changed into them at the top of the at the top of the staircase, you know. There was just this small room up there where she often had to get changed. And I, God, how they ever did those costume changes, I'll never know. It was a thrill being in that show. Well, your forays into musical theatre, Sal, have been seen some uh, quite iconic productions um, and goalposts of music theatre in Australia, starting with uh, with Greece and, and Godspell and yes. Rocky Horror Show, yes, Guys and Dolls, Ned Kelly, Sunset Boulevard. It's an extraordinary repertoire uh, of experiences. Yeah, they were. They were at the time you... Uh, I mean, when you reflect back on them, you, you, you can see how they've dotted the... Uh, certainly made their mark in the history of musical theatre in Australia. And, that, and each one has come along almost about 10 years apart from... from <laughs> that's so from true, other. isn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's right. Because uh, Guys and Dolls was 85, 86, and then Sunset, 96, and then... Yeah, and Rocky was 74, 70, yeah. And in between time, I had to go off and do, as people say, real work, you know. When you're bringing up a family, you know, and I worked as a, as a producer of events, running Cardi Club for the Sydney Festival for about eight years. That became a bit of an iconic success as well, that place. Well, you've got to pay the bills. you got to pay bills, that's right. And then I, I ended up working uh, for the state government uh, as the... Um, Head of uh, events for uh, Darling Harbour and then later on the Rocks, yeah. you know, doing festivals there, New Year's Eve, Australia Day, and, and jazz festivals, Latin American festivals, circus and street theatre festivals, you know, yeah. producing all those. Yeah. That was a uh, that took out quite a bit of took up quite a bit of my time for quite a while, but but you never you never. 
you never give up wanting to be back on the stage at some stage. And after Sunset, I came back to Sydney uh, and went, did My Fair Lady and uh, with Anthony Warlow, that had Anthony Warlow, Suzanne Johnson, uh, lovely cast, Ronnie Hadrick playing um, uh, Doolittle. And, uh, and that, was, that was a joy as well. Uh, lovely production. Warlow was once again just superb, you know, working with people like that, working with people like him and Hugh and I, I honestly say when you, I honestly think when when you think back on on all the shows, they all were wonderful shows, and you had a wonderful time performing in them. But I think I think the thing that resonates most and that you remember most of the people, Rod and Dolores in uh, and Ronnie Challoner in uh, Godspell, and Reg in Rocky and. And uh, Guys and Dolls, you know, the opportunity to work with people like Nancy and, and Peter Adams and uh, Anthony Warlow. Well, let me just tell you, the first time we sat down, uh, the leads in, in Guys and Dolls had done a week's rehearsal beforehand on some of the songs, right? So that meant Nancy and... Um, and, and Anthony and, and Ricky and um, um, Angela Reyes had tried out some of the, the songs beforehand. So we're all there, we're all doing the general read through on day one, sitting around the big circle as you do. And they said, oh, the musical director said, let's have a crack at, um, which was David King. He said, let's Let's sing, uh, I've never been in love before. Let's just do it as we come to it, you know. And so Anthony and, uh, and uh, Angela Ayres sing this song. It's the first time I've ever heard <laughs> Anthony Waller's voice. And it's just like, oh, fuck. It's like liquid gold. I thought, wow, I've never heard such a beautiful tenor voice in my life you know it just had something it had a special timbre about it and um, yeah that song gave us all goosebumps we just sat there gobsmacked at the end of it and of course Ange sang beautifully with him and it was just priceless moments priceless moment yeah you never forget those moments now, your son, Tom, has followed Dad's footsteps into, <laughs> into the profession. Was, yes. was that a concern or a delight? Uh, it was a bit of both, Peter, because you know how tough the business is. And, uh, but look, it, it was from very early on. He, I mean, he's, when he was five years old, he knew the score of Into the Woods. He could sing just about every song in Into the Woods. He used to watch the movie production of the uh, the original Broadway show, you know, uh, and, and uh, just fell in love with it. And while other kids were just watching Disney, he was watching Into the Woods. 
So he was destined to be in um, to be to be in showbiz. But look, it, it's it's a joy when you see them on stage. And uh, <laughs> I get emotional about these things. But when you see them on stage, and you know, that's their passion. That's what they love doing, and they're doing it. It's a beautiful thing. Well, it harks back to that advice you were given by Don Mendoza about, you know, what's your life, and you've got to do what you're happy with. That's right. That's right. That's right. And there's, you know, I can't remember, some famous person once said, I'd rather be a failure or be average at doing something that I love rather than a huge success at doing something that I don't enjoy doing. Yeah. You know, and that's the story of showbiz. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing your story of showbiz today, Sal. It's been a delight to uh, finally sit down and, and have this conversation. Um, yeah, thanks, Peter. It's been very enjoyable. Thank you. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Yes, delving back into the past. There you go. And lovely talking with you as well. Yeah. You can catch Sal Sharar on stage in the Gershwin musical Nice Work If You Can Get It, playing at the Hayes Theatre in Sydney from November 18th, and presented by Michelle Guthrie. Following on from the success of the 2021 Neglected Musicals presentation, Cameron Mitchell will direct and choreograph Nice Work If You Can Get It, a new take on classic 1920s musical farce. The tale of Jimmy Winter, a wealthy and carefree playboy, living the good life in the midst of prohibition. Jimmy has had an unfortunate habit of marrying chorus girls until he's forced to marry a woman of substance, Eileen Evergreen, the finest interpreter of modern dance in the world. With a cast that includes Rob Mallett, Ashley Rubenbach, Grace Driscoll, Andrew Walden, Anthony Garcia, Adora Alapu, Octavia Baron-Martin, Katie Hamilton, Lisa Callingham, James McAlpine, Rose Shannon-Dahig, Joel Huon, Jamie Jomasud, Andy Seymour, Jasper Wind, Nat Foti, and my guest today, the brilliant Sel Sharar. It's the feel-good musical to end 2022 in style. Art Deco style. Booking at HayesTheatre.com. Thanks for joining us in this episode. I look forward to your company next time. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe. Bye for now from Stages. Stages.